0: You're listening to the Evanston Bible Fellowship Podcast. EBF is a community of sojourners empowering one another to cultivate gospel transformation.
1: To learn more about our church, visit EBFChurch.org.
0: So today's passage is 1 Peter 2 4 through 10. Um, that's 1 Peter 2, 4-10. through 10. Uh, Please rise for the reading of God's word. And again, that's 1 Peter 2, 4-10. through 10. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Well, good morning once again. Greetings to all those that are gathered here as well as those joining in on our live stream. Welcome this day, this day that the Lord indeed has made. And I just want to introduce myself for those that may not know me. My name is Tim Allen. That's not a fake name. That's my real name. Let's just get that out of the way, right? Although I find, I find that some generations coming up have no idea who Tim Allen is. Maybe the voice of Buzz Lightyear, so that's okay. I'm not here to do a stand-up routine, so. Uh, yeah, well, you know what? I was um, thinking and reflecting upon Father's Day and the meaningfulness of it for myself, and that is thinking back just four years ago, um, Danielle and I had entered the, uh, the, the waiting pool to, to adopt. And long story very short, we got to meet our little Izzy, on all days of Father's Day, Father's Day um, in 2017. She was two weeks old, she was staying with the cradle care family. We got to meet birth mom, I think it was the day before, uh, or actually birth mom chose us the day before. We met her that day and then we got to meet Izzy on the way home and and she was placed in our home the next day, so what a whirlwind of a weekend. But I have after Father's Days, for several Father's Days, I I have to admit, I didn't really want to be in church. That's kind of hard when you're a pastor <laughs> uh, to not be in church. But we recognize that Father's Day is a day often of mixed emotions, and, and so we are um, we recognize that there is a, a wide spectrum of fatherhood, from those that are who deeply desire to be fathers to recent fathers. To those that are perhaps mourning the loss of a a father or husband. And of course to the response, I shouldn't say of course, but to the responsibility really that all men have to be spiritual fathers to those that are coming up after us. Transferring the faith to those who will carry it on to others. And so it is vital today that we look to God, our, our heavenly father. That we are reminded together of his goodness, of his grace. I also just want to say thank you to those that were able to join us for the service of lament last Sunday. And I, I'm hopeful and I have even heard in some of our prayers in this, this past week how this biblical language of lament has become more a part of the fabric of our church. And it is, I believe that that is a good thing. That's a godly thing. And so would you continue offering those prayers as we lament together the things in our world, the things in our community, the things in our church that have wronged or injured the name. And also, as I have shared with our church family, these are two weeks here together of prayer and fasting and of seeking the Lord together as a church. We are in a series called Sojourners and Exiles, looking at the book of First Peter, Sojourners and Exiles. I, bring, I believe that this is this is a, a timely word for us where we find ourselves here in the 21st century. In 1 Peter 1, 22 through 2, 3, we discovered that because God has given us new life through the living and enduring word of God, let us love one another deeply from the heart and long for spiritual nourishment incessantly, without stopping, craving that spiritual nourishment. May God's word nourish us even today. Let's pray. Our Father, we give thanks to you for you are good. Your love endures forever. It is better to take refuge in you than in, to trust in humans. It is better to take refuge in you than to trust in princes. You are our strength and our defense. You have become our salvation. This weekend, O oh Lord, we remember and celebrate the emancipation of enslaved African Americans in our country. And we thank you for this small step of recognizing Juneteenth, but acknowledge how much there is still to be done. Lord, we we pray along with the prophet Amos, let justice roll like a river, righteousness like a never-ending stream. And, O Lord, would you cause us, as your prophet Micah says, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Father, we come to you grateful today for our fathers, and we ask that you would strengthen our fathers among us, that we would lead our families with conviction and courage and love. Stir all of the men here today, Lord, to serve as spiritual fathers to those that come up after us. And Father, would you help those who struggle with mixed emotions this day, whether recent loss or a deep desire to become a father, or even the grappling of a strained relationship with a father. Lord, thank you for being our perfect heavenly father. May we find our refuge and strength in you. Lord, for the families whose children were dedicated to you today, we pray that you would bear them up. You would provide all the grace and the strength that you give through your gospel. Lord, would you draw these little ones' hearts to you? Would they trust in you at a young age? And as we turn to the living and enduring word of God, would you open our eyes, Lord, to behold your glory. Open our ears to hear your truth proclaimed, and open our hands, O Lord, to deeds of faith and true righteousness and holiness. We pray in Christ's name, amen, amen. Well, there's a bad foundation. Not the words that we wanted to hear necessarily. You have a bad foundation. You know, we've been doing a a house search here in the Evanston area. This was actually back about a a year, not quite a year ago or so, but we were getting an inspection done on a house that we thought might be the one for us, and that inspection turned up some significant foundational and structural issues in that home. Words that probably no homeowner wants to hear. (laughs) You have a bad foundation. The truth of the matter is that many people have a bad foundation in their lives, and they may be completely unaware of that fact. How do we know that our foundation is solid? What, and perhaps better who, should our lives be built upon? That is what Peter addresses here in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 7. If you haven't already turned there, I would invite you to do so. And in this passage, what we discover are two contrasting building projects, two building projects. And along the way, what Peter does is he provides clues of who not only who Jesus is, but also markers of Christian identity, who we are in Christ. Who Jesus is and who we are in Christ. And so the first building project that we find right off the bat in verses four through six is the spiritual house constructed by God with Christ as the cornerstone. In this project, God is the master builder. Jesus is the cornerstone. And Christians are individual stones that God is using to build his spiritual house, the church. The first clue of who Jesus is, we might even say his messiahship and his lordship as well, is that Jesus is the living stone. The thought of a stone being alive might sound a little absurd at first, unless maybe we're in like a a VeggieTales video or something like that, but Peter uses this vivid metaphor to point to the resurrection of Jesus. Our Savior, buried in a stone-cold tomb, that tomb that was sealed by the original rolling stone has burst forth into glorious day. And Jesus is now the living stone. Second clue of who Jesus is, is that he is chosen by God and precious to him. Chosen by God and precious to him. Remember back to chapter one, verse 20. He was chosen before the creation of the world. Before speaking anything into existence, God pinned everything on Jesus. He was no plan B Precious, precious, and is a word that can also mean priceless, and it conveys the the love, the limitless love that God the Father has for his son. And it conveys the preciousness with which we should view our Savior Jesus as well. Third clue is that Jesus is the cornerstone. Peter, who has just caused us to or called us to feast on the living and enduring word of God in the verses prior is going to open up several passages. It's almost like they come lightning fast, all these passages that collide together. And in fact, he uses three pass. There are three passages in the Old Testament that, use, that connect the Messiah with this vivid imagery of the stone or a rock. And Peter uses all of them, all of them, to make his case here, beginning with Isaiah 28, verse 16. He shows how this text that drips with what we might call messianic expectations, how it is perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Peter had testified before the religious leaders in Acts 4.11 that Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. But really, he was borrowing this idea from Christ himself. We are reminded of our Savior's words like in Mark 12.10, where he says, haven't you read this passage of Scripture The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. In ancient structures, the cornerstone was a huge stone, often weighing many, many tons, that was laid in the corner of the foundation. It was the first stone that was laid. It was used to make sure that the entire structure was stable, as well as square. So everything would be built out from the cornerstone. Everything was oriented around it. And everything would be built up from the cornerstone as well. Everything would be, would, would be built up from it. And so to us as a church, Jesus being our cornerstone, our lives, our very lives should be around him. And he is the one on whom our lives should be built. He is our reference point. He is our foundation. Well, here at the first building project, we also find three markers of our Christian identity as well. The first being that Christians are like living stones. Throughout this passage, I believe Peter is intent on showing the close relationship that believers have, that followers of Jesus Christ have with Christ himself. And the first way he does this is by highlighting that Christ as the living stone has made us to be like living stones as well. And this is all because of his resurrection you know, I've had the privilege before of visiting a gold mine. Actually, it was the Cripple Creek gold mine in, uh, in Colorado, where uh, <laughs> I think, I, you know, my dad keeps making his way into my messages, I guess, but he's worked for 38 years for Caterpillar and Peoria and worked on some of the mining trucks that were used in this particular mine, and so it was kind of a, a proud papa moment in a lot, a lot of ways, I guess, but there's an overlook where you can go up to the top of this mine and you can peer way down into the pit and see where this, like, beehive activity, where these huge, massive mining trucks look to be, like, you know, that tall. And what a reminder it was to me of the miracle of salvation, that God mines inanimate rocks, makes us alive in Christ, and mortars us into a new covenant reality, that is, his church. He minds us from the pit of our own sin, makes us alive in Christ, and mortars us together into a new community, all because of his sheer grace. Second marker, Christians are being built into a spiritual house. A living stone has little use by itself but when joined to others it becomes part of something beautiful the freeing thing about this though this phrase is, is that we aren't the ones that are doing the building that is left to god the text says that we are being built into a spiritual house it is god's responsibility as we are reminded by the words of christ himself i will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it The story is told of a a Spartan king who boasted to a visiting monarch about the strong walls of Sparta. I'm not going to do a voice from like 300 or anything like that, but you can imagine. When the visiting king looked around, he saw no walls and asked, where are the renowned walls of Sparta? The Spartan king pointed back to his army and replied, these are the walls of Sparta, every man a brick. Even though this image in the image here in First Peter uh, is of a building, not a wall, the idea is similar: that each one of us, as a living stone, has a unique role to play in the integrity and in the well-being of this spiritual house that God is in the process of building. Each one of us has a unique role to play in the integrity and well-being of the whole. Whether we agree with one another or not, true Christians belong to each other like stones in a building. And this should cause us to think outside of our, our camps. should cause us to have more of a kingdom mindset. We have a unity with one another that rises above individual believers, that rises above churches and denominations. We belong to one another because we belong to Christ. Not only are believers God's temple, but they are, third, our holy priesthood. As a result, there is no longer a privileged few that stand between us and God. Instead, we are all priests together and can draw near to God in worship. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. God is building a spiritual house with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone and Christians as the living stones being placed together, placed and pieced together to worship God. So let us come to him. Did you catch that phrase at the beginning of verse 4? As we come to him. It signals a regular and a personal relationship with Jesus that starts the moment we come to faith in Jesus Christ and then is continued as we remain in him. Church, let us be among those who drink deeply and long for that pure spiritual nourishment that Peter has just talked about earlier in chapter 2. May we not wither. May we not try to operate out of our own strength. Peter's almost assumption here is that we are coming to God on a regular basis as we come to Him. Church, let us draw near to Him. And in so doing, let us awful, awful. awful, offer spiritual sacrifices in worship. Spiritual sacrifices, the result of being built into a spiritual house and being a holy priesthood is offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Becoming living stones should cause our very hearts to sing in worship to our God and King. For if we as living stones don't cry out, God will make inanimate stones do it for us. And rather than animal sacrifices, we offer some ways that spiritual sacrifices show up in Scripture. We offer our bodies, Romans 12. We offer our lips and our actions, Hebrews 13. Our finances, Philippians 4. And yes, even our spiritual descendants, as Romans 15 reminds us. Really, these these. Spiritual sacrifices are any action that flows from the transformational power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. And so every aspect of our lives should be offered to God in whole life worship. That is, that is part and parcel to our, one of our ethos statements here at EBF, that of abiding worship. All of our lives should be offered to our great God. Every sacrifice should be offered through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, church, continue to trust in him. The one who trusts in him, verse 6, will never be put to shame. What a powerful message that is. That powerful message that Peter first conveyed to these scattered and discouraged Christians here in Asia Minor. And one that we need to hear today as well. Continue to trust in him. Well, the second building project that takes place in verses 7 through 8 is the earthly house constructed by humans who reject Christ as the cornerstone. These verses contain two more clues, though, of who Jesus is, the fourth being that Jesus is also the stone the builders rejected. Not only is he the cornerstone, but he is the stone the builders rejected. This is a reference to Psalm 118, 22, and sheds light on the realities surrounding those who do not believe the stone the builders rejected, has become the cornerstone i 've laid some hardwood flooring in my life, and don 't worry i'm not, this is not i 'm not looking for side jobs or anything like that, but um, in so doing though, it is vital that you start in the corner with the longest, straightest board and placing that well Jesus is in many ways is like the longest, straightest, perfect board that should be placed in the corner to orient our lives around. I'm using corner in a positive sense. Even as I say that, I'm realizing, like, I'm telling you to place Jesus in a corner. No, to orient our lives around him. But instead of placing him in the corner, what do these builders do? I'm even reminded of how, in examining some of those boards, I would often throw some, just, like, chuck them. I'm like, I'm not using that one, right? And almost expected there to be some rejects. But it's almost like these builders reject this perfect board and instead in favor of a warped board, a board that has no business of being there in the corner. It could be a warped board such as, such as like human achievement, power, wealth. Not only is Jesus the stone the builders rejected, but he is the stumbling stone, verse 8. Here Peter references Isaiah 8, verse 14. He will be a holy place. For both Israel and Judah, he will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. In the context of Isaiah 8 here, Yahweh himself is the stone. But Peter shows that Jesus now is the stumbling stone. This remarkably lends even further credence to Jesus being God. That, I believe that Peter makes that connection here. Instead of being the cornerstone of the building, he is a stone that people trip over and fall flat on their face. If you've done some hiking before, or maybe trail running or something, you, think about, you can think about those rocks, those boulders that are often right, right in the middle of the trail. You can think about some, some that uh, Danielle and I have stumbled over in her journeys as well, but that's the picture here. That is the picture that is being painted They stumble because they disobey the message, verse 8, which is also what they were destined for. Oh, man, we could spend the rest of our time just unpacking that. But suffice it to say, or maybe just to scratch the surface of that, that verse is one of several in Scripture that I believe bring together not only human responsibility on the one hand, but God's sovereignty as well in Virtual theological black box as to how those two work together. But did you catch it? They stumble because they disobey the message, human responsibility, which is also what they were destined for God's sovereignty. But, church, let us come to Him. Let us come to Him and fall into His arms. We can react to Jesus in one of two ways we can trip over Him and fall flat on our face. Or we can come to him and fall into his arms. You know, we often overlook how just fundamentally divisive Jesus is. Absolutely everyone is affected by the coming of Christ, either positively or negatively. There is no simply riding on the fence. We can either embrace him and become a living stone or reject him and end up stumbling over him. Here's how one commentator puts it. Leonard Gophel says, "'Christ is laid across the path of humanity "'on its course into the future. "'One cannot simply step over Jesus "'to go on about the daily routine "'and pass him by to build a future. "'Either one sees and becomes a living stone, "'or one stumbles as a blind person over Christ "'and comes to ruin, "'falling short of one's creator and redeemer, "'and thereby of one's destiny.'" so today, Jesus is laid across the path of your life. And you have a choice to make. There's no getting around him. In the passage where Peter has declared and and talked about Christ as the cornerstone in Acts 4.11, the very next verse, verse 12, says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind, by which we must be saved. Well, in verses 9 through 10, Peter goes on to provide five additional markers that describe in magnificent ways who we are in Christ, our identity. And they're done in such a way that is not only in stark contrast to those who do not believe, but these are all collective statements as well. We could read y'all into this. So the, that, the fourth one of those being, the fourth marker of Christian identity being that Christians are a chosen people. Verse nine. God's choosing of Jesus becomes a pattern of also choosing his people. And with this phrase, I believe Peter builds upon Isaiah 43, 20 through 21. It says this. The wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. To give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. Here in Isaiah 43, God announces that he will rescue his people from exile and shows how he provides for them. They are his chosen people who are descendants from Abraham. And now Peter insists that all Christians are part of God's chosen people amid the kaleidoscope of their diversity because of Christ himself, the chief cornerstone. The fifth identity marker is that Christians are a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. This reiterates that holy priesthood in verse 5 and alludes to Exodus 19, 5 through 6. It says, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. This past, I'm realizing how many, how many references there are to the Old Testament here. There's so many of them. It just, you can just tell these are fresh on Peter's mind. And here in Exodus 19, the people of Israel have been rescued from slavery in Egypt and are a kingdom of priests. Peter again picks up this image and applies it to all Christians who have experienced ourselves, experienced rescue from slavery of sin. The unique thing here is that the combination of royal and priesthood, at first glance, it seems to be kind of the the mixing of metaphors. And if you think about the Old Testament, no king was supposed to also serve as priest. And the one who tried to do so, Uzziah, was met with God's judgment. But for Christians who have been rescued from slavery to sin, we now come under the royal rule of the king of the universe, of God himself. And that is what makes us royal. Because of Christ's death on the cross, all believers can enjoy direct access to God through the one mediator, Christ himself. And we minister before him as royal priests. The sixth identity marker is that Christians are a holy nation. I believe also drawn from that passage in Exodus 19. You'll be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In this text, the people of Israel were about to become constituted as a nation with their own constitution, their own land, and their own covenant. But Peter takes this marker and applies it again to all Christians, Jew and Gentile alike, who are one nation under the terms of the new covenant, regardless of geographical boundaries and regardless of ethnic barriers Christians are people who are called by God to reflect God's character he is utterly holy Christians are people who are called by God to to be separate or to be set apart by God we need to remember that our primary allegiance is to Christ and his kingdom we are called to live in community but not in conformity The seventh identity marker is that Christians are God's special possession. The ESV puts it this way. It says, a people for his own possession. Not only do we belong to God now, but this also points forward to the future when we will be finally and fully reunited with our king. And Exodus 19 promises that if the people of Israel stay true to the covenant, then they will remain God's treasured people. That's what Peter picks up here and applies to all Christians by calling them God's special possession and so closely connected with that is the eighth marker that Christians are the people of God Christians are the people of God once you were not a people and now you are the people of God this draws from Hosea 2:21 it says i will plant her for myself in the land i will show my love to the one i called not my loved one i will say to those called not my people you are my people and they will say, you are my God. In this text, the northern kingdom of Israel had already fallen because of going after other gods. And the southern kingdom of Judah was about to follow suit. And so Hosea, a prophet of God, is called by God to name his son Lo-Ami, which means not my people. We are just dedicating these amazing children here this morning and talking about the meaning and significance of their names, can you imagine being told, name your son, not my people. Strong boy's name, not quite. Not my people. And yet this served as a sign. This served as a sign. This was because God no longer viewed the people of Israel, both north and south, as his people. But then God turns right around again and announces that he will show them mercy and overturn this sentence. At first glance, it may seem like those who are not my people are Gentiles who will be introduced to the people of God. But understanding the broader context of Hosea shows us that it is Jews that God calls not my people and declares his own people. He declares his own people not his people, but then he turns around and shows them mercy. So Peter picks up on this to show in a radical way that all who have become part of God's people come to God the same way. And if God promises to show mercy to his people who he calls calls Gentiles, then there's nothing standing in the way of God showing mercy to all people who come to faith in him. And so the reason we are now the people of God is completely because of God's mercy. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. God saw fit to show his love and his mercy, and he didn't need to do this, but he chose to, and we owe everything to him. It is in light of these identity markers, church, that I believe we are called to, in a way, to be who we are, To be who we are, we must embrace and live out these identity markers of who God has caused us to be in such a way that authenticates, lends credence to the message, the gospel that we bear. As God's people, it is important that we strike the balance between remaining distinct from the world around us while at the same time not becoming overly isolated from the world around us. Remaining separate means having contact without becoming contaminated. People around us though are watching to see if our authenticate the message that we bear. It really makes me wonder what people think when they see citizens of heaven fighting among one another. What does that communicate? We need to be united as citizens of heaven and we need to tangibly show to the world around us what a people united by God's grace and mercy are all about. And church, it is only Jesus who can unite us. It is only Jesus. He is the chief cornerstone, the one our lives should be oriented around and the one our lives should be built upon. So in exploring these markers of Christian identity, the landing place for us is to look at our purpose as God's people. That's what Peter weaves into the end of verse nine. So that you may declare the praises of him, who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Our purpose as God's people is both worship and witness. Worship and witness. Each of us is a living advertisement of God. The question is, what is it that you are advertising? Does your life pulse and radiate with his marvelous light? As chosen people, royal priesthood, a holy nation, a special possession, a people of God, our purpose is twofold, worship and witness. These should flow naturally and spontaneously when we remember and understand that all of these blessings come out of the free and sheer mercy of God. So let us embrace and live out our purpose as God's people Declaring God's praises can be done to God, to God in worship, and to others in evangelism. Worship declares to God, you are holy. The prophets during the Old Testament time taught that God redeemed his people for his praise. In fact, Peter may have picked up on this from the allusion there in Isaiah 43 that says, that they may proclaim my praise. It seems like that's kind of seeped its way into what he's saying here in chapter 2. In, in 1 Peter 2, to declare God's praises is to speak of all that he is and all that he has done. Worship declares to God, you are holy. And declares to others, God is holy. Declaring God's praises or declaring his excellencies is inherently proclamational. And yet in the same way, it is more than just verbal it involves lives lived in accordance with his marvelous light. Sharing our lives involves telling them, telling people about the darkness that we were in before God radically got, got a hold of our lives. That's what Peter has talked about in chapter 114, those evil desires. In verse 18 as well, as, as well, the empty way of life that was handed down to us, that is what he has rescued us from, reaching down into the pit of sin making us alive and mortaring us into the new community. And it involves painting a picture of the wonderful light we continue to experience and look forward to. We have been rescued from darkness and drawn into his marvelous light. And we look forward to that day when we will experience his light fully. So church, a life that embraces the living stone, Christ, the cornerstone, becomes part of God's house and chosen people whose purpose is worship and witness all according to the sheer grace of God. I believe that's what this passage points to. And it is a call for us as a body to trust in Christ, to trust in the living stone, to trust in He who has been chosen by God and precious to Him, to trust in the cornerstone, the one our lives should be oriented around, and the one our lives should be built upon. Church, let us be who we are. Living stones who are being built into a spiritual house, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you together that the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Lord, we praise you that you have done this. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Oh Lord, would you cause our lives to be oriented around your son, Jesus Christ? Would you cause our lives to be anchored in and built upon he who is our rock, our strength, the very source of our lives? Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. Would you cause these truths to not remain words on a page, but would you cause us to seep deep within us, transform us from the inside out and translate into our white-hot worship of you and of our witness to the surrounding world of the glories, the excellencies of your name. Lord, we marvel in this work that you have done. We praise you for your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in your precious and matchless name. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's message. To hear more messages from EBF, subscribe to our podcast.
1: And to find out how to get connected with our church, visit ebfchurch.org.